as Adam Smith said, if people are left free to the greatest extent possible without damaging each other to operate in their own best interests, the entire wealth of the nation will rise accordingly. And that's going on in the United States. The Chinese are in the process of cracking down on that. They're cracking down on their large corporations. Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Exciting second hour. Yes, where you will hear Jeff say... Uh, Fill the wall up with our English dead. Yes, very exciting. But you didn't leave any cliffhangers. You already said that. I can say herd immunity might be a mirage. Whoa. That is, if you're going to see a mirage, that is not one I would want to be seeing. What is a herd on the horizon? Look at that. An immune herd. It's a immune herd up there. Oh, no. It's, it's just heat waves. Never mind. All right. So we are back. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. Um, we finished off the subjects that we were talking about last hour fairly well. We got some new ones. Well, we need to tell people that they can contact us either on Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com with questions, thoughts, comments, or anything else you want to throw at us, as long as it's not profane. And, let me, and let we'll me, answer on the air. I, I have a, you know, we were talking last hour about being on the air for 20 plus years, but we've been on the air longer than the United States has been in Afghanistan. Wow. We have a question from Roger. And it's an it's a easy question to answer. The question is, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, especially the way it occurred, will that, will that withdrawal embolden China? Uh, by the way it occurred, I mean overnight abandonment of Bagram Air Base without telling the Afghans and the rapid collapse of the Afghan army, etc. Um, I mentioned this last week. We've talked about this over the two decades of the... Um, involvement that we've had in Afghanistan nearly nearly two decades it's very close the Taliban's still out there when we leave the Taliban's going to take over this isn't something that should surprise anyone it was part of you know the it's the reason why we haven't left is that they're still there and if we leave they'll be just come right back out well you you the other alternative is to wipe out the population. Well, we don't do that. That's not generally considered a nice thing for people to do, no matter what reason you might have. That's not acceptable. Um, so they're coming back. Will that embolden China? There's a very easy one-word answer. I bet you know what it is. No. Well, I would say yes. I would say no. I, I would say it will embolden China on its diplomatic front, and it will scare the socks off of them on its Belt and Road project. How's that? Well, you know, there was a solution to Afghanistan. General Curtis LeMay had the same solution for Vietnam. Which is? Nuke them till their teeth glow in the dark. Yeah, yeah that would have been a solution for someone. Yeah, and so we didn't do that. Anyway, the point is, uh, Afghanistan is the big thing right now, just like when we pulled out of Vietnam in a chaotic sense and left the Viet Cong with all the equipment that we left them 
and the same noises were made. I'm old enough to remember that very clearly. Remember all the same, only they remained in the newspaper rather than on the internet, but still the, by the way, it was the Democrats who were making those noises because it was a Republican president who pulled out of uh, Vietnam and was a collapse and a debacle and a collapse. The, the point is, Afghanistan has eaten alive. It, it, it ate Russia. The Soviet Union's collapse, the key point in the Soviet Union's collapse was Afghanistan. Yeah. When the Romans invaded Afghanistan, they had a legion go in there and just was eaten. It dis- disappeared, was gone, was eaten by the Afghanis. And it was the beginning of the decline of the Roman Empire. When the British went in there, they attempted to conquer Afghanistan and civilize it. And it was the beginning of the decline of the British Empire, of the British Empire. Did I say British Roman Empire and then British Empire? Yeah. It's, this has been a real pattern through history. The fact that we are emerging stronger than we went in. Yeah. Afghanistan and, is known as the graveyard of empires. And if we continue to do what we're doing, we're still... There's no evidence that we, that it weakened the United States to go into Afghanistan. It's a sad thing, but it didn't it didn't weaken us to go in there or to get out. And and everybody winds up getting out of Afghanistan. By the but it was the Democrats who were howling when we went in that it was a quagmire and we shouldn't go in there. And in retrospect, they should have listened to Douglas MacArthur. He said never get in never get involved in a land war on the Asian continent. And every one we've gotten involved in on the Asian continent has been one we've said about. Now, now, I could come at this from a completely different angle. And you asked about, will it embolden China? That's a complicated, and I said, well, let's do a very simple one-word answer. That was definitely tongue-in-cheek. There's no simple answer to that. Uh, and China will be emboldened on some fronts and terrified on others, because strategically, they've just been put in a very difficult situation with security along there. The Taliban's not known for their um, peaceful ways. That's... What? Yeah, I, I know. I, it's shocking. So that's a thing. But to come at this from a different direction, when people say, you know, we're not in this for nation building, we're not trying to build a nation, and this is the longest uh, war that we've ever been in, and you know, the, the, the stuff that gets said all the time about this, I have to point some things out. We still have troops in Japan and Germany and the Philippines. W- why? Well, it's because we left them there because we were afraid if we took them out that some other nasty power would fill the vacuum. So you could define our role in Germany and Japan as being still part of World War II if you wanted to. And that there are still, get this, insurgent attacks against American troops in Germany and in Japan. Now, usually it involves something benign like eggs or being hit in the face or spit on or that sort of thing. But for the 15 years after the war, it was much more serious than that. Maybe even 20 years after the war, it was, it was pretty, pretty serious. We did the Marshall Plan in Europe and in Japan, where we pumped money in and really, really did nation building. We never did that with Afghanistan. We didn't do it with Iraq. We installed, within the first year of our uh, uninstalling the previous regime, we helped them install a different regime, which is just full of corruption all the way across the board. You know how long MacArthur served with all of the powers of the emperor of Japan after World War II? (laughs) 
five oh, years. We, you can't just take out people in charge and put in new people in charge and throw a bunch of money at it and say, that's it, it's done. You have to plan the thing out and you have to do it very carefully. And we didn't, we didn't do that in Iraq or Afghanistan. We didn't do it in Vietnam. We, we did it to some extent with Korea and we absolutely did it in Germany and Japan which is we said, when you break it, you buy it. And maybe they attacked us first, but we're going to go over there and we're going to make it a place where they're going to be our allies in the future, not our enemies. And lo and behold, what do we have? You know, People may argue that Germany was reluctant to make deals with Donald Trump or with, with Barack Obama or name whatever, but they are in no way attempting to attack us. In fact, they're one of our great trading partners. And the quibbles that we have with them are on whether or not we should do something uh, relatively small and benign, not whether or not we should go to war tomorrow. So what happened? Will it, it's leaving a power vacuum that the Taliban's filling up. Will it embolden China? Absolutely. Will it embolden Russia? Absolutely. On their diplomatic, on their social media fronts, they have laughing material they have finger pointing material for the next couple of decades this is great stuff for them when it comes to the belt and road that already is traveling through some pretty scary stuff and china spending a lot of money on it it just got scarier their strategic investment in that whole area was built around the concept that america wouldn't be able to get out of afghanistan um they wouldn't have the, the, the intestinal fortitude to leave because it would leave such a nasty thing when they leave. Well, they being us, and we just did it. And it was, in com- it was a plan made by Donald Trump and by Joe Biden. So if you're a Republican and you're angry, be angry at, at Donald Trump. And if you're a Democrat and you're angry, be angry at Joe Biden. And if you want to just be angry at somebody to be angry at, at somebody, you can choose anybody you want. Um, anybody. You just, just choose somebody randomly. Um, I'm not advocating that, by the way. But if you like being angry, you really don't need it's the selection choice here. And was, were bad decisions made in the war? Yes, absolutely. All the way through. Were good decisions made in the role? Yep, yep, absolutely. All the way through. That's what war is. Um, and the consequences are always bad. There's, there's never a happy ending when it comes to war. <laughs> the only, and this is a great thing. Is what, I'm going to mangle the quote. And I'm not even sure who to attribute it to, but the, the statement is um, the only thing sadder than winning a battle is losing one. I wanted to talk about a macroeconomic issue. Okay, that so I think this a lot is a people subject change. Going to the next subject now. Okay, no, no segue. No well, segue. Well, that was that was the segue. Oh, hold on a second. We'll I need to get my economic I need to get my neck brace on. We're swinging around here all over. Okay, go ahead. A lot of people are afraid of China. And they're afraid of China, not because they have a bigger navy than we do or a bigger that they may have a bigger army, but they'd have to figure out how to get it someplace, which would be very, very difficult. China is nothing to be afraid of in the long term if we continue to be on our game at all. Why is that? Well, China and I actually talked to a guy last uh, see week before last at some length who insisted that China did not have a recession and they probably generated the coronavirus to cause a recession in the United States and hurt the United States economically because they didn't have a recession. Well, folks, in the second, Credit Suisse came, Credit Suisse, I still want to call them Swiss because they're in Switzerland. 
uh, came out with their analysis of what happened in the second quarter this year and last year of China this uh, last week. And it was an interesting analysis. They generally have, it takes a long time to get the analysis together because they don't, they're not taking the official numbers from the Chinese government. They're looking at all the indicators, like how much import was going on, how much export was going on, all the stuff you can track in China, including satellite data. The Chinese economy in the second quarter of last year contracted 6.5%. Now, let's contrast that with the United States. We actually increased about 1% during the second, same period. Yeah, we had a recession, but our recession only lasted two months. We didn't even, it didn't even last a full quarter before we started recovering. The Chinese economy from that point forward has continued to grow, and it's grown about, uh, it, it's sunk 6.5%. But in the year since, the U.S. economy grew 12.2%, while the Chinese economy grew 7.9%. We are pulling ahead of China, and probably will, according to Moody's, for the next five quarters at least, the growth in the economy of the United States will be greater than that of China. Now, you got to think about that a moment. China is still an emerging market, a developing nation that has a lot of people behind oxen plowing rice fields. So it's got a lot of room to grow, but its growth is slowing. That's not to say it's it's going into recession. There's a difference between growing backwards and shrinking and slower growth. But China, a lot of people estimated China would come out of this like gangbusters, and they haven't. And there's several reasons they haven't. One of the big reasons they haven't come out of it like gangbusters, gangbusters is probably not a very good term because it goes back to the 1930s. And there's very few people besides me who know what it means. Uh, what's a good word for gangbusters? Um uh, I, that's a good word for it. You don't have to get okay. rid of it. Gangbusters is fine. And just to throw this in, you said this about behind oxen for the Chinese. Uh, there's a statistic that we quote fairly regularly as a way of looking at progression in the United States. In the year 1900, about 20% of the workforce, or I'm sorry, 80% of the workforce in 1900. So 20% not. 80% in the workforce were in agriculture. And then in 1980, 20% was in agriculture. In the year 2000, 2% was in agriculture and less than 0.2% are in agriculture today in the United States. In China, about 23 or 24%, 23.6% of the workforce were employed in the agriculture sector. It's because they're very inefficient and they have low productivity. Right. 28.7% are in the industrial sector. So just think about that for a second. This is the industrial powerhouse of the world with less than 30% of their workforce associated with it. They've still got about 50% in service. And that makes sense. That's the way it's supposed to be because you got to keep things running. You got to do taxes. You got to make sure that your electricity is working and all of that. China has a lot of people. And eventually, the mainstream, main, the consensus among economists is sometime around 2030, some say as late as 2038, China's GDP will catch up with that of the United States. Yeah. But it's an interesting point. They all agree that about that same time, China's economic growth rate will slow to 2% or below. And the same is like where the United States has been historically over the last decade or two. Uh, why? Because they will have been and all those people who are behind oxen and put tractors in, in the place of the oxen. Yeah, and that's going to knock a big unemployment. They're, they're just like we did uh, during the, the Dust Bowl when we really, the tractors were really showing their, their usage. A lot of people became unemployed because the tractor replaced them. 
and they didn't have anything else they knew how to do. The problem is that demographics drives the train here. And the there's most economists at this point believe that the workforce in China has already started to shrink. The one-child policy has really put a hurt on them. And as their workforce shrinks and their productivity is not rising as fast as it was, eventually China will decline. And a lot of the reason that Chairman Xi is pushing really hard for global dominance, not global dominance, but dominance, at least in the region right now, is because he realizes they may be at the peak of their economic performance right now. And from there, it's downhill. Now, the United States is still growing. It's not growing very fast. Now, it's not growing, by the way, from domestic births. We, we're growing only because we've had immigration. And you may say, that's weird. That's wrong. There's something wrong with that. That has been the history of the United States. Yeah, from the waves very beginning. Of, waves of people come into the United States, become relatively prosperous, have two children or less. And the result is this: the domestic population birth rate stabilizes to where we're no longer growing, but we allow waves of immigrants to come in. It was from Eastern Europe in the past. Right now, it's and you. Although the perception is that the Hispanic culture people are coming in. Actually, there are more Asian culture people coming into the United States than there are Hispanic people coming into the United States right now. And the United States is a hodgepodge of a lot of different cultures. Um, the Northern European culture that dominated the United States is now, I think, a fifth this year officially a minority. Yeah, demographically, we're the the typical European is now I mean that that population is shrinking. It's not growing. That that is something we've we've talked about this for decades and decades. This is just but what happens when you get prosperous. It's in the United States, the Europeans are the most prosperous the European descended people are the by, as a demographic group are the most prosperous and they're having fewer children. Children are expensive. Used to be children were very, very valuable because you could get them to work for you. I managed to manage a little bit of that, but uh, yeah, child labor led to me. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's but you. You're for it. those of you that don't know this, because we get this a lot. Old Baldy, there's my dad. Young Baldy, Jake, is the son of old. Uh, we'll say this respectfully. Elder Baldy, Jeff, and very importantly, my wife of fifty years is Jake's mother. Yes. Yeah, and then there's some kind of weird coincidence about that. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know what the statistical chance of you and I being related is? I wouldn't even begin to guess. It's 100%. Just, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I know that's a tough question to answer, but you know. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's, there is always, you always know who your mother is, but your father is always in question. Although anybody that looks at me is a picture when I was your age and thinks it's you. Probably there's a very high probability. Right. And, and I won't tell mom you said that. All right. It's just, it's just generally true. But anyway, the Chinese economy is growing. It will probably start growing faster than the United States again, probably in a couple of years. But it's smaller than the United States. So a faster growth rate some years is still less growth than we make in that year. But that's not the important thing. And this is the important thing that Credit Suisse came out with. And I had to do some work to figure to get these numbers correct. Credit Suisse came out with the Chinese wealth, the wealth of China. Now, when, when they measured the wealth of China, included a lot of property and companies and so on owned by the government because the government owns a lot of companies in China, whereas the government owns very few in the United States. But owns a lot of real estate. Yeah. The BLM. Yeah. And the, the National Forestry Service and the, the, the park systems and all of that stuff. So there's a yeah. lot of real estate owned in, in the United States by the federal government. Anyway, if you look at just the value in the United States that's owned by households and nonprofits, 
It's the Federal Reserve tracks that. Credit Suisse takes all of North America and lumps it together as a group when they give the number. So that wasn't a very good number. But the Chinese value of the wealth of China, that's its assets minus its liabilities, is $74.9 trillion as of June, which is a lot of money. Matter of fact, it makes it the second can we just well, round the second largest? If we're going to round it to seventy four point nine trillion, can we just say seventy five trillion? That way we can get rid of the decimals and. Well, point one trillion is still a lot of money, I think. It is, I but mind. but let's we're, we rounded all the other okay. digits. Yeah, all right. No, so no, seventy five. Seventy four point nine. Seventy four point nine. Okay. Okay. That's fine. Um, trillion dollars is the value, the net worth of all that is owned in. China. China. Yeah. And it grew at about 9% over the last 12 months, which sounds really good because it is really good. Here's the key. According to the Federal Reserve, the net worth of households and nonprofits alone, that this does not count the government, does not count corporate assets that are owned outside. I don't know if any corporate assets are owned that are not considered part of household, but it doesn't count the government at all. We in the United States have a net worth of $136.9 trillion, and it grew at 10.4% over the last year, and it's consistently outgrown that of China. This is the important thing. If you have two people, and one of them is making, let's just say one of them is making $500,000 a year, Mm -hmm. and the other one's making $300,000 a year. Okay. But the one that's making $300,000 a year has a net worth of $5 million. Okay. I would say $136 million net worth. $136 million net worth. Okay. Whereas the one who's making $500,000 a year has a $75 million net worth. Which of them has the, more, has the greater ability to do things in the world? Definitely the one with the more wealth. Their income this year, their cash flow may be lower this year, but they have access to more wealth. They have access to more wealth and their, their wealth is generating a lot for them and it continues to build. So that's the important thing to remember. We are so far ahead of China that any projection by any economist that I've seen, and I looked around quite a while to look at this, has China never catching up with the United States in net worth. Yeah. And I agree and with it, that. It, and it's important to recognize it isn't our income that generates our ability to have a Navy and have armed forces and have the power to project around the world. And and this it is, is our is the wealth of nations, as Adam Smith put it. And and I'll come at this from a different direction because while the growth rate, the percentage at which the growth happens in China has been faster, their GDP, their amount that they make, is not as much as ours. So even the analogy you just used of say they're worth $136 million, but they're only making three hundred thousand a year. Versus $74 million making five hundred. Only in this case, the one with the more wealth actually is making more money every year too. Our GDP yeah. is bigger. And so with, they have a tremendous hill to climb to get caught up to where we are. It's just, it's a massive mountain to climb. And demographically, they're shrinking. They're having fewer babies. Uh, even though now they're saying, hey, you can have two now. You can have two. You can have three now. If you really want, you can have three. People are still having one or less because they changed the cultural viewpoint of people that have more than one baby completely with a very traumatic experience of the one-child policy. And by very traumatic, it is horrifyingly traumatic 
but it's something that they were capable of doing and they did it. And it's not the only time it's happened in history. There's the Egyptians did it for a while. And there's a lot of times in history that people limited the number of kids a baby uh, or babies that were born to, to their population. But what it's done is it's set up a culture that's not ready to grow. There's another aspect to this that's going on that's maybe shorter term, may not be. We allow billionaires to be billionaires. We allow them to be multi-billionaires and mega-billionaires. And there's a lot of complaint about the fact that, what is it, 1% of the nation owns 16% of the wealth of the nation? Yeah. And we don't consider, although some people complain about that bitterly, I don't personally have a gripe about it at all. The fact that somebody has accumulated billions and billions of dollars, multi-billionaires, the Jeff Bezos and the uh, the people like him around the country, and the uh, the people, the, the owner of Tesla, I've lost his name. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. The people like that are creating new technology, and they're in a race to the top. And yes, they have tremendous quantities of wealth compared with the people who are working for them, and tremendous income compared with the people who are working for them. But that doesn't mean that the people who are working for them are not doing very, very well, and they're continuing to be more efficient and make more and more better things and better more and better ways of doing things. And that is a tremendous advantage. The Chinese are on the other end of this experiment. There's a balance here. The Chinese are cracking down on their billionaires and they're objecting to the fact that wealth is getting concentrated at the top. Back in the in the ni- late 19th century and the early 20th century, going into the, into the 1920s, we had the same level of wealth concentration that we have now, and we had tremendous economic growth. That... Wealth concentration and economic growth go together. I'm, you know, I'm sorry if you don't have a billion dollars. I'm sorry, I don't have a billion dollars. I'm glad you're sorry. I don't have a billion dollars because the median house in the United States is only four hundred thirty-six thousand dollars or some other ridiculous number right now, and yet people are still able to buy them. A rising tide, a rising tide raises all ships, as Adam Smith said. If people are left free to the greatest extent possible without damaging each other, to operate in their own best interests the entire wealth of the nation will rise accordingly. And that's going on in the United States. The Chinese are in the process of cracking down on that. They're cracking down on their large corporations. Well, the, they, still, specifically, they still have huge... Specifically, information sector of technology, the industrial side, they're not cracking down on. They're subsidizing. They're basically saying private banking, any kind of service-oriented technology is not acceptable in China right now. And, and one of the reasons they're doing that, very frankly, is because a lot of Chinese are employed at state-owned manufacturing facilities, and they don't want competition. They, they, they want the money directed to the state-owned facilities where they have control. In other words, the Chinese are focused on having control of their economy. The United States is focused on growing the economy with limited controls. I sound like a Republican now. And or, we, or a and libertarian. A libert- well, not a libertarian. I said limited controls. I want controls. I yeah, it's want a little controls. Excessive. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think most to, libertarians don't, don't be. believe that it's it, that the law against murder should go away. I think they still think that murder is a crime. Most but of I them. Don't have any, I don't have any objection to the 1% having 16% of the wealth. I've seen this happen because I've read history. I've seen it happen before in history. It works out in the end. Eventually, it'll it'll diverge in their, as the generations pass on, it'll diverge and it'll become less and less again. But the point is, we're in a massive growth spurt in the United States, and we're letting it run free. We have very little control over it, and we're trying to do very little to control it. Whereas in China, without legislative action, without vote, the crackdown is going any place where people are making too much money, they're being hammered. And it is having an, an apparent effect on their economy right now. The other thing, that the two experiments going on, 
The United States did not do massive lockdowns. We may think we did massive lockdowns. We did the least lockdown of any developed nation on the planet. And we abandoned the lockdown methodology of getting things done. The Chinese are still locking down. Several of their port facilities the last couple of weeks have been locked down because of COVID Delta variant outbreaks, which is, by the way, going to cause another little spike in inflation as the cause it becomes more and more difficult to get things out of China where we buy them. It's also going to make the Chinese less competitive and make us go someplace else to get our goods and services. Right. And this is something you alluded to this just for a moment at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, in comparison about what happened in China over the last several uh, years and so on. And you alluded to the fact that people had been saying, you know, China, the Chinese didn't have any problem economically while we had this recession. And this is what's coming out of the numbers is that the Chinese economy shrank. The Chinese economy shrank for the first time in about three decades during the pandemic. And its growth rate has been seriously hampered they're having trouble getting the vaccine there, so they are keeping or the vaccine that they're using is not at all as effective as some of the American and German and the big big pharmaceutical companies out there have made a lot better product than the Chinese company or the or the Russian company. Imagine that. I, I know. Uh, but that's led their economy to have a lot of friction. Just when they're ramping up production again, they shut down. And and as we have said here repeatedly since the beginning of the pandemic, the worst thing you can do to an economy isn't to shut it down and start it back up again. That's not that's not the worst thing you can do. It's to shut it down, start it and then shut it and then start it repeatedly. It's kind of like if you're sitting in your car and your engine's already running and you're trying to turn it on, you're going to burn out your ignition. Um, When we talked about last hour about that truck driver shortage uh, from the manufacturer to the warehouse and then the truck driver shortage from the warehouse to the buying facilities and trying to fill those gaps, that's an issue that China's experiencing far more than we are. We're experiencing it from China. This is part of the issue that we're having with the, you know, we, we talk about the, you know, the chip manufacturers just went to building other things. Well, a lot of the Chinese chip manufacturers really don't know what they're supposed to be building, building right now. The state-run thing, there's no clear direction. And the reason is because these state-owned companies, while they have a central authority, the central authority is looking at thousands of different types of industry and trying to make a decision on it, while Elon Musk is making decisions on batteries and electric motors. And Jeff Bezos is making decisions on server hosting and... Uh, product development and product acquisition. And when we talk about that concentrated wealth, it's because we specialized. Well, the Chinese economy, each plant may be specialized in whatever it is that they're trying to make, but they get that demand from someone else. And then the government is trying to manage this massive conglomerate of state-run stuff. I mean, when when General Electric got out of electricity and into all the other things, and then they had to rebuild themselves and focus back down, uh, it's a sign of difficulty in a corporation when they have so many different revenue generators that they can't focus on anything. They need to kind of split their company so that they can do it properly. They don't do that in China. So I think that as a as a concept of why the Chinese are out there, they are a big economic threat, they are a big uh, um, economic powerhouse, but they're not as big a threat 
long-term as a lot of people think they are. Actually, they're the only thread, and therefore we want to make it big, and the headline writers want to make it big. Exactly. Because that sells, that sells papers or clicks. They don't sell papers anymore. They sell clicks. Right. Clicks on the ads. And we got to play some commercials. We don't have to for another four minutes. Well, we could, play, three and a half we could wait three and a half minutes. Do you want to wrap up the China conversation before well, the commercial? It's a, it's, a big, it's a big experimental difference. We are using vaccines as a methodology of getting out of the COVID crisis. And it's important to recognize that the COVID crisis is not going to go away anytime soon. The 1918 influenza crisis lasted two and a half years. And this one is probably going to last two and a half years as well, at least. And then it's not going to go away at that point. And booster shots are already being recommended. This is something that is going to continue to plague us for a long time to come. We're just learning to deal with it. We're learning to deal with it through vaccines. And we're learning to deal with it not as well as we should or could. Uh, I think if the polio vaccine had been, if, if, if the same percentage of the United States decided not to get the polio vaccine that, that decided not to get the COVID vaccine, we would have had a crisis for a much longer period of time. We'd still have polio. Eventually, we'll get this thing behind us, though, and eventually we'll get the supply and change issues worked out. It just takes time. And when we do, this is a critical thing to understand. Corporations are sitting on absolute record quantities of cash that they're earning no money or negative re- returns. And they want to spend it on something, and it's going to cause an economic, once this is over with and behind us, which may be a year, maybe 2023 before it starts, we're going to see an economic long-term boom that I think will cause this the 2020s to be the roaring 20s again. Right. The S&P Global folks set, uh, track how much cash and short-term investments are sitting in companies' balance sheets. They will get this from corporate filings. And uh, back in 2019... We were hovering right in the $5 trillion number of, this is cash. This is cash and short-term investments that will be available in a very short period of time as cash. So $5 trillion was where we were hovering in 2019. We're up at almost $7 trillion, $6.8 trillion now. If you think about that, that's like a 30% increase in the amount of cash that corporations are sitting on when they were sitting on a large amount of cash in 2019. And that means that investment is available should they need it. They're holding reserves just in case because this new variant, we don't know what's going on. They haven't hired back as quickly as they thought they might, though they hired back fast. That extra reserve means that they have the ability to continue to grow, even if we have more downturn. And that's fantastic from, from the long-term perspective. And their capital investment is around 10% right now. And it's low. It was forecast to be 19% this year. It was reduced to 10%. But that's still... 10% capital investment is still... Capital investment is companies buying things and building things with the intent of making money from them when they've invested the money. Yeah, that's... And 10% is historically... I'll I'll use the the word ginormous here. Uh, Even though it's not as... It's not 19%, which was would have been completely off the records. There's no place else in time where we've been a 20% capital improvement. 10% is just phenomenally large. What that means is that they're taking money that they're making and making the things that they do better. I know that seems like something everybody should be doing all the time. And usually that's done with like 1% or 2% of the revenue, not 10%. That's just, there's just no real comparison. When we flew in yesterday, as we passed over Austin, what has struck me was, because it's been a while since I've flown over Austin, the number of big factory 
facilities scattered around the airport in the general vicinity of the airport is astonishing. And of course, it's dominated by the Tesla plant that's going up. But the huge factory facilities that have sprung up in the past couple of years around the airport are just astonishing. We are due for an economic boom. If you'd like to join the conversation, we have email waiting at Jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other end of these very important announcements. Welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach. We have returned, and I'm going to change the subject once more. I'm going to jump over to something we've covered quite a bit over the last several years during the pandemic, mortgage forbearance. What is that? What is that mortgage forbearance thing? This is when um, currently we've got moratoriums on evictions and on foreclosures and so on. How has that actually been um, working? What is it? Uh, what is this moratorium on a mor- mortgage foreclosure? There's a lot of more words in there. That's Latin for death, by the way. A moratorium on a mortgage. So uh, uh, they're, they're killing the death expectancy. Uh, okay, so what is forbearance? Forbearance in student loans and in mortgages are when you're allowed by law to call up and say, hey, I can't make my payments. Keep charging interest to it, Whatever's going on with my income is not allowing me to make enough income to make ends meet. Put me on forbearance. Forbearance is not something that many mortgage companies allowed before the the um, before the pandemic. Now, when I say not many people allowed it, there there were exceptions. Jenny May, Government National Mortgage Association, they run the VA loans to to the military for their houses. They run the uh, low-income mortgage-type situations, and they've had forbearance as a thing for a long time. It's hard to get, but it's out there. Okay, so then the pandemic ha- hits, and we had a lot of folks go into forbearance, and I think we were up in the 10-plus percent for a few months. So where are we now? What's going on with that? Um, so I'm gonna I'm going to kind of bring us up to date by going back to several points during this year to show you the trend line. Back in, in May 2nd, uh, covering the, the time period between late April and into early May, uh, total loans and forbearance was at 4.47%. That's 4.5%. Okay. Then you come forward a few months to June, the end of June. Um, total loans and forbearance less than 4%. I see a trend here. Half a percent of the all the mortgages out there are no longer in forbearance. All right, so come forward to today. Less than 3.5%. So we've come down a full percentage point in loans and forbearance when we only had 45 to begin with during that time period. Now, that's a lot. Most, most mortgages never go into forbearance during the history of the mortgage. So to have 10% go is a bad thing. To now be down to 3.5%, it's still a bad thing, but it's a, much, it's a much better bad thing than the other bad thing. It's getting better. And when you come out of forbearance, when you're in student loans or you're in a mortgage, it doesn't mean that they've forgiven you that debt. Interest was still being charged on the loan, so you probably have a larger mortgage than you went into forbearance with. 
So it's going to take a lot. This is something that could last decades getting that fixed. Just something out there. And this is one of the things that we're watching. So we're at 3.4% of all loans and forbearance. And just to let you know where that's coming from, that's from the Mortgage Bankers Association. And they let these press releases out. And they cover about 74% of the first-time mortgage buying market. So they're only about three quarters out there, but then they get information from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Jenny Mae, and they can combine that all out there so that we have information on the vast majority of mortgages and forbearance, almost all of them. Um, that's cool. It means that we've come way down on that. What we don't have information on, the big unknown out there, and you know, this is one of those things that people think economists just get all this data from all these different places and we have data on everything. We don't. There are places where we have little to no data. And this is an area that, you know, if you're out there thinking about starting a data corporation, this would be a good place to start. That is data on rental forbearance or delinquencies. So we could go to delinquencies. Delinquencies means that they've just not paid their debt. They haven't gone into forbearance and the delinquency rate's fairly high. It's not as high as the forbearance rate in most areas. Okay. So what area do we not know about? Rent. Have you paid your rent? Because the vast majority of rental uh, payments go to private owners that own less than five rental properties. There's no common place where that data is gathered. There's no way to know that unless you're doing like surveys by phone. And the people that are least likely to answer their telephone are the people that don't pay their rent. Now, that's not a scientific survey. That was me gathering a bunch of anecdotal information and throwing it out there as a fact. I should say that's not a fact, but I've noticed this in the demographic. People that aren't paying their rent are less likely to answer their phone. Actually, the IRS knows with about a year and a half lag, but they're not telling anybody. Right. They can't tell anybody and they don't compile that data. So the IRS, the IRS knows, knows everything. on each form that is submitted, but they're not allowed to compile that data in any way to allow it to come out because we don't want them to. We don't want them to be telling everybody how much money you made. Uh, that's that's violation of privacy like nobody's business uh, or my business. And it's, it's not your business. It's, it's Mind your own business. That's what we're saying to the IRS. And that's what they do for the most part. We don't get big leaks from the IRS. You might get a leak from a from an accounting firm, but you're not going to get it from the IRS. And that's something we've seen both across Democrats and Republicans. So just know that. We don't know where the rent income is. We don't know how bad it is or, or not. We can go out and obviously it's easy to find stories about people who have not had their rent paid for, for the entire time and they're going bankrupt and they can't even get their house that they own back. So landlords with bad stories abound, but we don't have any way of measuring it. If we look at the mortgage market, you'd think, well, that should be enough. You can see the improvement there. You probably just hypothesize that the improvement continues elsewhere, except that the mortgage market, people that own their own homes are far more likely to make their payments than people that rent. That's something we know across the board for long history. So just be aware, there's a lot out there. We're very optimistic. And you hear us talk about the optimism that's coming, that the new growth, the new factories, the new innovations, new productivity, 
all that good stuff. We're going to bring the supply chain back. We still have some bumps in the road. The mortgage issue is going to be there whether or not we get to the end of September based on the executive order from the Biden administration that says no more foreclosures or evictions or whatever. That's the end of it. You really can't extend it. Even when they did it this time, they said they're pretty sure it's not constitutional. So this next step of with the Delta variant being out there, maybe the CDC would be allowed to say hey, no evictions. Maybe. But the courts are getting less patience on that. At some point, you cannot force someone to give up their property if you're the government because there's a part of the Constitution on, on that where the government can't force you to give up your property without being paid for it. Uh, it's, it's an important part of our law. And at some point, we'll get to that point, and then these forbearances are going to be there. These, these delinquencies and the folks that just simply haven't paid rent, there's going to be a lot of change in the real estate market, and that will spread elsewhere. When mortgages aren't being paid and you don't have forbearance anymore, it's a very bad thing. <laughs> forbearance is a bad thing too, but it's a bad thing that they're saying, hey, we won't collect on you right now. We still don't understand the unemployment numbers very well, by the way. Although, interestingly enough, China's unemployment rate is higher than the U.S. right now, which tells you something. I'm not sure what. Yeah. The, uh, the unemployment You'd think that the unemployment would drop dramatically after the when in the states where they ended the extra three hundred dollars a month, but according to Moody's, they've looked at those states and found out that the unemployment rate did not drop. As a matter of fact, it dropped greater in the states where the three hundred dollars a month was continued than it did in the states where three hundred dollars a month was terminated. It was terminated in Texas, and we still have six point the release that just came out this week. Texas still has a six point two percent unemployment rate. It hasn't budged from where it was before we ended the $300 a month extra. So there's something big going on out there. And the, the reports that I'm seeing suggest that a lot of the jobs have moved and changed. In other words, companies have gone out of business and they just kind of quietly went out of business. And the people used to work there, let's say in a, in a small town or wherever they used to work there, that skill set is gone. And there simply is no equivalent skill set where they get paid anywhere near as much money and they own a house and they can't move. That seems to be a big chunk of it. The other thing is when school set starts up again, I expect to see unemployment drop simply because school is cheap daycare. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with then, that. that. So we've got to continue to watch this. And those are, those are big things. The fact that we don't know it. When people ask us these questions and like, what, what is it, what's the difference here in the mismatch on unemployment? Well, we're not sure we can, we can guess, but we, and it may be a pretty good guess, but we're really not sure. How's it going in the rental market? Well, we're not sure. We got a pretty good guess, but the, that guess is a worse guess than the other guesses because we got less information. Uh, so just keep that in mind when you hear prognosticators. There's still big areas of the economy that are completely unmeasurable. Uh, just know that. And we're about out of time for this week. Thank you guys. Thank you all very much. Those one or two of you that are listening, we really appreciate it. We love you all. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give investment advice and management for folks with high net worth. Um, the, on a fiduciary basis. On a fiduciary basis, yeah. So if you would like to contact us off the air, there's voicemail waiting locally at 
254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same line toll-free, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Uh, there's newsletter there. You can sign up for it. You can read it. Uh, you can contact us through the contact form or jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.